Well, I don't know if you read ahead or not, but if you read ahead in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know that this morning we get to have the talk. Yes, that talk. The talk that every parent dreads uh, having with their children. That talk. Because it turns out that when Jesus gives us his manifesto, his introduction to his kingdom, one of the things that he includes is a discussion about sexuality and sexual identity and sexual practice. Which makes me have to ask the question, I mean, why would Jesus care about this? Why should Christians talk about sex? I think if you were to ask people who don't know Jesus that question, I imagine they would probably tell Christians, well, say what you want, but stay out of my bedroom. They would probably know some of the highly publicized uh, stories of hypocrisy of Christian leaders. They'd probably stereotype Christians as not wanting to have any fun or being killjoys. And there'd be something to that. Because it is possible to find studies that say Christian people get divorced as often as non-Christians. That they look at porn the same amount as those outside the kingdom. That sexual expectations expressed on Christian dating apps are very similar to those expressed on the non-Christian dating apps. And so what do we make of this? What do we make of what Jesus talks about when he wants to talk about adultery and lust and divorce? Well, it needs to be more than simply kids will be kids or Christians will be prudes. Because this is one of the chief points of conflict, isn't it? between secularists and the church, between even the government and the kingdom of heaven. That somehow, sex is a big deal to both sides. And this morning, of course, I'm not going to say everything there is to say about a Christian view of sexuality, but we at least need to consider why Christians have a different sexual ethic than non-Christians. And for some reason, if they don't, why they should. Because the reality is, Jesus is in no way squeamish about talking about these things. He doesn't hesitate to raise the expectations and the standards surrounding sexual activity. In fact, one of the things that I think today's text as well as all of Jesus' teaching will do, is remind us that everyone is broken in some way, and many of us are broken sexually. Please hear me. The kingdom of heaven is not for those who have their act together or are somehow sexually perfect, as though that could even be a thing. That's a lie. 
Our sexual lives are simply part of the whole package, part of our whole lives that remind us how much we need the, the gospel and how much we need to trust Jesus. After all, Jesus did bring this up often. He, he brought it up, as you may remember, with the woman at the well. It wasn't her that brought it up. She was like most of us, wanting to hide it, wanting to not talk about it, wanting to keep it in the shadows. And Jesus brought it up and asked, what about your, what about your husband? And then she proceeded to say she didn't have one. He said, you're right, you've had five, and the one you got now isn't your husband. And it turns out that that brokenness was the very place that Jesus poured in his grace. That that area, that singular area where she was an outcast and a misfit was the place where she was invited to drink deeply from the spring of living water. And it's my hope that this conversation, uh, even if it makes you despair, will make you look to Jesus and drink deeply from the fountain of living water as well. And so, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Beginning in verse 27, we're going to read about the kingdom's sexual ethic, which is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You might even say it is His constitution of His kingdom. This reminds us, really, that sexual issues are ultimately spiritual issues. That's the way that Jesus transforms them such that it is part of the constitution of his kingdom so that we recognize the difference between being in and out of the kingdom in fact he takes the constitution you might say of israel uh, the ten commandments the covenant and says you have heard this but i say to you here's the new constitution here's the new covenant And he includes there, like the, the covenant with Israel, he includes sexuality as part of the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. And so, Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 27, says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman 
commits adultery. So here we see that the sexual ethic in the kingdom of God is one that, first of all, represents a changed heart, and second of all, keeps covenant. That the distinction of the sexual ethic in the kingdom is that it means your heart is at peace and not pursuing something you don't have. And it means that the covenant made between you and a spouse matters. And it matters not only because you've made it with the spouse, but because you've made it before God. And so the kingdom of Jesus treats sex as a matter of the heart and marriage as a covenant representation of God and His people. And there is a lot going on here for sure that's really beyond just the sexual expression. I I want you to realize that we're not merely talking about um, a physical act here. Jesus um, moves it beyond that to a spiritual issue of the heart. One that raises the question about where the problem lies. Does the problem lie in me? Am I sinful? Or does the problem lie outside of me that you all don't see that I'm free to do what I want? There are a number of questions that circulate around this issue that are not uh, inherently sexual. Jesus is defining for us here that righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It does it with respect to anger. We saw that last week. And it does it with respect to adultery. We'll see that in this text. So to hunger and thirst for righteousness, as it indicates in verse 6 of chapter 5 here, looks like in this aspect of life, the desire to honor Christ with your body among several other things. And so the first thing that we have to see here is that sex ultimately is a matter of the heart. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery already with her in his heart. And Jesus pushes it from a physical act to a heart act, from something that you would do in secret to something that is uh, about the affections and the fidelity of your soul to your covenant. And that heart issue requires that I at least address several things here The first thing that probably needs to be acknowledged is that this probably sounds like it was written primarily to men. If you look down there, you'll notice that it's talking about men lusting after a woman. And the reality is it is written primarily to men. Because it was men that had the power. It was men that in that culture had the sexual freedom Women were restricted in uh, what they could do, uh, and there was an expectation of sexual and marital fidelity uh, among women that was not evenly distributed along gender lines. 
men had much more freedom. And so Jesus confronts this appropriately. He presses the issue directly here with the people to whom it needed to be pressed. And today we would hope, right, that we've, we've come a little farther, that now you could give these same words to men and to women and to say to women, you shouldn't look with lustful intent uh, toward a man. And so we would apply these really both directions, even though they were applied only one direction in the beginning. And so the principle holds really for both men and women that God's intent is to capture your heart and that your heart is not free to set its affection anywhere you like. The second thing that probably needs to be noticed is that adultery, like murder, is a heart matter. It is not enough to simply find ways around murder, like we saw last week, so that you're, uh, you, you can somehow uh, not actually murder someone but injure them in multiple other ways anyhow. Jesus wants people in His kingdom to have a heart that doesn't get angry or doesn't insult, even more than that, that reconciles with other people, even more than that, that reconciles with their enemy. And what I see Jesus doing with respect to anger is raising the bar and the expectation and so far that makes me say, how could I possibly do that? I must have Jesus change my heart. And the same here is true, isn't it? with respect to adultery. He raises the bar so high that it makes me ask the question, how can I do this? Where can I, where can I find escape from the guilt of adultery that happens even when no one can tell? And so you see, What Jesus is doing is not saying just, uh, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, it's about the heart. Jesus is not saying what you really need to know is how far you can go before it becomes sin. That was always the question with teenagers, right? How far can you go? That's not the question at all. The point really is How can you remain faithful to your king who created you for an exclusive covenant relationship? And so it's really not a matter of how far is too far. It's a matter of how do I get my heart oriented toward Jesus in a way that holds me fast in his kingdom. Because really... the, the bar is so high, isn't it? That it makes, it makes us look at that and say, how can we possibly despair? Or how can we possibly make it without despair? I mean, it's a matter, this is a matter of utmost and inmost importance. Because 
the problem isn't ultimately about sex. It's ultimately about self. My heart is either inclined to my King Jesus, or it's inclined to indulge myself. But not both. And that's, I think, what the line that Jesus is drawing here. He's drawing a line that suggests that either you're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness and pursue it, or you're not. You're going to be like the Pharisees who attempted to win the game. The game of avoid the big sin or the game of dance around the rules. Somehow make your way around it and still get to enjoy it somehow. See, that's, that's what Jesus is avoiding altogether here. He's altogether saying, this is a matter of your heart. You're either mine or you're not. You're either in the kingdom and pressing into the kingdom or not. There's no question that Jesus brought this up because it was even the religious leaders who were looking at the rule and trying to find exceptions. And that, I think, is really part of what Jesus is addressing in all of these situations that He's giving us these cases, these case studies here in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He's saying the tendency, our tendency is to get as close to sin as possible without some, crossing some imaginary line, rather than saying, how close can I get to Jesus? And so he's, he's drawing us into the kingdom, into this new way of living, rather than saying, just avoid the bad stuff. And so while he's driving this at the heart, I, I also have to admit that action is important. Because it appears that that Jesus is making this matter of the heart so important that it's, that it's more important than your hand or your eye. He's saying, take whatever means necessary to keep your heart from wandering and your eye from wandering. And I think one of the gauges of your heart is whether or not you use means to combat your proneness to wander? Are you doing things to safeguard your covenant? Do you have internet filters? Do you have accountability? Do you have safeguards about uh, when you're alone with someone and who you're alone with? Jesus says it must be important, right? If he's saying, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, it must be important. In fact, so important, you'll notice the outcome of hypocrisy in this area is the same as the outcome of hypocrisy with anger. If you insult your brother, what happens? You're guilty of judgment and the fire of hell. And here he says it's better to go maimed into the kingdom than to be cast into hellfire. And so again, I just want to pull back a little bit and think about why this is so important to Jesus. Why would he make this part of his kingdom? Because 
if you think about it, our current situation in particular, this is really not very good marketing. Because this is, a, this is a place where there's pressure everywhere. There's pressure in entertainment. There's pressure in the legal system. There's pressure everywhere about this issue. The reality is, though, Jesus wasn't really marketing, was he? It's not very good marketing to say, hey, blessed are you if you're persecuted. Why don't you come along? So Jesus here recognizes that this sexual ethic that is distinct from the world means that the sexual relationships of people in the kingdom are in a covenant relationship with one man and one woman. And why would Jesus say that? Again, trying to anticipate people saying, well, the pastor is approved this morning. Because if you go back to the beginning of the sermon... What's the very first word? Blessed. Right? When Jesus started the sermon, he said, Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So he's not saying, Blessed are the people who have it all together, or Blessed are those who really toe the line, or Blessed are those who really bring it. He's saying, Blessed are those who are broken and have nothing, sexually and in every other way. And I'm inviting them into my kingdom. You remember when we talked about it being a blessing. We talked about it meaning that Jesus was inviting people into a life of flourishing. Of true and abiding happiness. The kind of life that looks like a tree planted by the streams of water that brings forth its fruit and it sees that everything it does prospers. It's fruitful and alive. This kind of human flourishing is what Jesus has in mind in His kingdom. And so He is bringing a new kingdom into this world, inviting us into it. And part of that new life, that new kingdom, is a new sexual ethic. It's a heart ethic that says, bind yourself to your king first and to your covenant partner and avoid at all costs temptations to turn away from that covenant. Which then brings us to the second part of this text, which is the part about marriage and divorce. Because marriage, too, is a matter of covenant. In the, in the covenant keepers, it's what Jesus wants in his kingdom. Jesus said in verse 31, it was also said, so you've also heard, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery himself. You notice the quick jump, right, to marriage and divorce is a quick jump because it winds up with the same prohibition that we started with. You shall not commit adultery. And so Jesus packages these two things together because the desire for sex 
is a desire to drive us into a covenant relationship of marriage. That's why Jesus gave that desire. And so the covenant of marriage is such that it is to hold us in a place of keeping covenant that gives us a picture of the covenant that God makes with His people. And so it is not merely that the ethic, that the sexual ethic is different from the world around us, but the marriage ethic is different from the world around us. And Jesus raises both bars equally high. And I hope that you see, especially in the first century context, that the prohibition against divorce is a protection uh, too for women. That women are not some plaything to be used by men for pleasure and then discarded. They are, be, they are to be cherished and protected. And Jesus says they would be in the kingdom of heaven. And so whether it's before marriage or outside of marriage or even in marriage, there is a protection for women in the kingdom of heaven or in the church. Now, Jesus says a lot more about this in Matthew chapter 19, and we'll deal with that when we get there. But I want you to recognize that when Jesus talks about uh, marriage and divorce, he goes back uh, to the beginning. In, this is in Matthew 19. To the beginning, God made them male and female, and he put them in a covenant relationship together. And that is Jesus' answer, really, to questions about marriage and divorce. That God's intention is one man, one woman for one lifetime. And anything else cultivates a consumer mentality between people where relationships become contractual and transactional. And that what you get out of the transaction matters. This is not the kingdom perspective. The perspective Jesus is driving at says that, that a marriage is about a covenant. Whether or not you get anything out of it. Whether or not it works out great for you or it's painful. The kingdom is about covenant faithfulness, not about contractual obligation or consumer interest. It says in Matthew 19, men could give wives a writ of divorce for essentially any reason. They were doing the very thing that Jesus is addressing here about adultery, and they were working the angles to try and have as much fun, so-called, as they could with as little responsibility. And Jesus is saying, this is not the way that God intended. And this is not the way it's going to work in the kingdom. And so what Jesus wants for his kingdom is men and women to live in the covenant relationship and for the sexual desires and the sexual uh, um, intensity to drive them to covenant. Julie Slattery in her book, Rethinking Sexuality, has many good insights. She said that from the moment marriage was instituted... God aimed to give the world an illustration of the gospel. The gospel, namely, that it 
Christian marriage mirrors God's covenant love. That God remains faithful to His covenant and to His covenant people. And it means that gender and sexuality and marriage have mattered from the beginning of creation. And that the spiritual significance wrapped up in sexuality has to do with the covenant love of God for His people. I think if we take the whole text together and you talk about uh, adultery being a matter of your mind and, and, and uh, looking with lustful intent, you, you have to say that God created a sexual desire to awaken our longing for love and to push us, you might say, or draw us into covenant. But even marriage is not the ultimate fulfillment of that desire. Because marriage is the shadow, the foretaste, the metaphor for the true longing to be known and embraced and accepted and celebrated by Christ. Which means our sexuality is infused with a significant spiritual purpose regardless of our marital status. God created this vulnerable, pleasurable, powerful act to be a regular celebration of the covenant promise a man and a woman make to each other. Stewarding your sexuality is about being true to the metaphor of covenant. And so Jesus raises this now in His constitution, the constitution of His new kingdom. So that people on their way in might evaluate and say, Is this what I want? Do I want this new way of living that is uh, fast held by covenant? Or do I want to live to gratify myself? And you would have to have your eyes closed to know that the world around us looks at sexuality differently than I'm describing here from Jesus. Because Jesus is inaugurating a kingdom. He is bringing a kingdom that is going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And He is remaking humanity. Like N.T. Wright says, he says, if we're, making, if we're remaking the world, let's get Genesis 1 and 2 right this time. And Jesus is going back to the beginning and saying, male and female in covenant relationship, that's how it's going to be in the kingdom. And that's how it's going to be that men and women flourish. That's the way of human flourishing. It's hard for us to believe Jesus on this. I think we want to believe the culture. We want to believe the entertainment that says that real happiness is found, real meaning in relationship is found in some sexual expression. And I would say it is in the context of the covenant. It is when it is not sold short in some other dispensable relationship 
It is an expression of that covenant commitment that God intends in marriage. Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, um, talks about the sacredness of uh, sexual activity by starting with pornography. He says this, in short... The major problem with pornography is not what many religious conservatives might understand it to be. It's promotion of lust and the objectifying of the participants. He says it certainly does both of those things. But the problem is also much deeper. It repudiates any notion that sex has significance beyond the act itself and therefore rejects any notion that is, it is emblematic of a sacred order. And I just want to, again, step back and look at this text and say, Jesus insists, doesn't he, on that sacred order. Because it is an illustration of the gospel. It is a picture of the covenant love God has for its people. And therefore, it is woven into the fabric of this kingdom that expresses that new covenant. And so Jesus is not merely challenging us on sexual behavior. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Instead, he is challenging us about our hearts. You have heard it uh, said, but I say to you. He's challenging us on our hearts. He's challenging us about our identity. The wrong question is ultimately, what do you do? Don't commit adultery. The better question is, who are you? Who are you? Are you a kingdom person? Or are you a person who lives to satisfy your appetite? Are you the kind of person who pursues and keeps covenant? Or are you the kind of person who looks for convenient ways around the rules? Are you set on defining yourself? Maybe even by your sexuality? Or are you set on being defined by King Jesus? Because the kingdom of heaven is defined by the king. He was the creator. He made male and female. He fashioned the woman for the man and said that it was very good. And so he says the issue is not merely the avoidance of adultery, but a heart desire to live for him. And so I have to say, because Jesus presses the issue early, your sexual life, your sexuality is not somehow exempt from following Jesus any more than any other part of your life is exempt. All of our life must be lived in submission to King Jesus. This is not a message intended to make you feel guilty. It's not a message intended to make you feel shame or even to prompt you to self-mutilation, gouging out your eye, cutting off your hand. But I want this message 
to be like the last several that function as an invitation into a different way of living, living in the kingdom of heaven, living with a transformed heart, living with a new king, living with a commitment to covenant love, a new way of living that drinks deeply from the fountain of living water and experiences the depth of the forgiveness and cleansing that Jesus brings. See, most if not all of us, as we think about our sexual history and our sexual lives, feel a degree of shame and desire for secrecy. And Jesus brings it up in the second paragraph after his introduction because he knows it's an issue for us. And this entrance into this new kind of life is simply a response to Jesus' words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn to me. Turn away from this old life. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This new way of living is right before you. Will you take it? I mean, ultimately, this standard, this extremely high standard for sexual ethics should make all of us repentant. This is not just for people who are different from you. It's for you. It's not for those who are somehow guilty or shamed or shunned because of their sexuality. It's for them too, but it's also for those of you who have the power and the freedom, who are in the majority, and who could get away with things if you want to get away with things. Because this is an invitation by Jesus to a different way of living. And I have to say, as much as the world thinks about sex, it is much of a topic as it is uh, in entertainment and in um, public uh, conversation, I have to say, you could not have a higher view of sex and the importance of sexual faithfulness in marriage than Jesus articulates here. And so, I invite you again this morning to come to Jesus. Come to Him because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Come to Him to find forgiveness and cleansing and healing and freedom. Come to Jesus as King and step into a kingdom that has a radically different constitution than the world around you has. And like the woman at the well, you'll find Jesus Himself to be the fountain of living water that will satisfy your deepest thirst. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you, would you take our broken lives and our broken hearts and would you be pleased to heal us and mend us 
to grant to us repentance. And Father, we, we long to live in the kingdom with King Jesus. We long for that day when all is made right and all hurts are healed. We long for the joy and the uh, beauty and the purity of the wedding supper of the Lamb when you celebrate this covenant faithfulness to your people. Father, would you help us to live lives in every aspect, lives that reflect Jesus is our King. And so, we need you for this. We can't do it by ourselves. And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.